from Matthew 26, 36 to 44. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Thank you, Ron. What many of you probably don't know is that that was my husband, Ron. You probably know that but that for many years, Ron was a pastor and a preacher, and um, now the tables are a little bit turning this morning. So um, normally, as I was up here earlier doing the welcome, you're used to seeing me up here doing announcements or welcome, but this morning I'm going to lead you through some reflections and thoughts on the theme for this morning, which is prayer and presence. It's the third installment in our series on prayer, Level 2 Prayers, Last week, Brandon led us through some postures in prayer. He gave us opportunity to actually physically um, express ourselves in prayer, including using the kneelers, and, um, and introduced us to the Jesus prayer. And I don't know if any of you used this prayer this week. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. A short prayer that can be prayed uh, briefly, and, um, br- briefly throughout the day, and it shapes and forms us as we do that. The theme for this morning um, actually flows out of a piece of writing that I have done on this topic. I've started to do a little writing in the last year, and I had been thinking about this idea of prayer and presence, and so it seemed to be a good fit in this series. And I'm going to read you part of that writing a little bit later on. Our text for this morning is from Matthew 26, 36 to 44. It's a somewhat familiar story. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you've been in church your whole life or for a lot of years or you've read through the Gospels, you will have read this story and probably be quite familiar with it. About three weeks, three or four weeks ago, about 40 of us from Elevation went out to Hidden Acres for the day on Saturday. Um, It wasn't for the faint of heart because the roads were quite treacherous that day, but it was worth the journey. And we spent some time out at Hidden Acres relaxing and eating and sharing together. And we were thinking about the theme of story. We talked about our own stories. We talked about the story of Nathan from the Bible. And then Brandon in the afternoon reflected on the story that is the grand narrative of God's love and his work in the world. Stories have the ability to draw us in. So as a little um, side um, workshop we did that day, we invited people to come and write a little bit of their own story. And the idea with this exercise was to write a story telling about the very first time you could remember a spiritual presence in your life. And 
we, we had some great stories, but the story that stood out to me was, was written by Myrna Bauman. And Myrna wrote a beautiful little story of herself as a little girl. Her family was facing a move to northern Ontario, and Myrna did not want to move, and she was quite distraught about this. And so her father took her out into the country and took her for a drive and talked to her and prayed with her. And for Myrna, that was a really meaningful encounter with her father and with God. As I heard that story, and Myrna and I are about the same age, I could imagine myself in that situation. I could imagine the car, what it might have looked like. I remember the cars back like 100 years ago had usually vinyl seats or leather seats. And in the summer, if you sat in there wearing shorts, your legs burned. And so I remembered that little piece. And, and I pictured myself, as I, as I thought further about the story in preparation for this talk this morning, I realized that the reason the story resonated with me is because my own father had taken me out, and I remembered quite clearly, um, for a drive in the country. It, for me, it wasn't a spiritual experience, but he, for a while, sold real estate, and he was selling a farm, and he took me out to see the farm. And I do remember there being ice cream involved in that, um, in, on that drive. But the idea that someone else's story can draw us in, and our own story intersects with that story. So that's what I'm going to invite us to do this morning. As we sit with this story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I want us to try to be present and to locate our own stories in the middle of this story. It's a beautiful, intimate narrative of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. For some context, Jesus is moving quickly toward his physical death. So he's enjoyed the Last Supper, well, had the Last Supper with his disciples, and now he knows that his physical death is imminent. And Jesus is anxious. Let's stop right there. Jesus is anxious. We know that Jesus was the Son of God. He was the physical embodiment on, on earth of God in heaven. He was fully God and fully man. So we know that Jesus was a human, but I think even if we understand that, it's easy to assume that Jesus didn't feel things quite the way we will. Um, I think that I always think, yes, I know Jesus suffered, but I think that he always knew that he could call on God. But here, we're given a clear window into Jesus' very real and very deep feelings. He's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The message version of the text says he plunged into an agonizing sorrow. So he asks his disciples to stay with him and keep watch. He steps away with Peter and two other disciples and asks them to, to keep watch, to be present. He's not asking that much of them. Just be present because he's afraid. And then he steps away to pray. At this point, he even calls out to God and asks whether he might be spared the fate that's awaiting him. And then he returns to his disciples, and they're sleeping. He's impatient. He expresses his impatience and disappointment with their behavior. Can't you stick it out with me a single hour? And he chides Peter, reminding him that he must watch and pray as a protection against falling into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Can you relate? We have a lot of young families in this community. And I remember when our children were young, uh, many times I felt like I was just walking around in a fog. Broken sleep, sickness going through the house, pressures. We have university students in our community cramming for papers, uh, studying for exams, maybe doing a part-time job, working a double shift. Or what about being a teenager? 
when they say that when you're a teenager, you actually need as much sleep as when you were an infant. You just can't stay awake. You're so tired. Jesus steps away a second time, and on returning, he finds them asleep again. And he steps away a third time and returns to find they've dropped off yet again. It reminds me of um, when I first started dating my husband, Ron. I was invited to his parents' home for a family gathering, including extended family, so some aunts and uncles. And everyone was sitting around in the living room and I think had plates on their laps, eating a meal together. And his uncles were known for engaging in kind of spirited conversation around usually religion and politics. And everyone usually parted friends, but it got quite, um, it got quite spirited at some points. But the funny thing about this gathering is that, and as a newcomer, I noticed this, one by one, it seems like on cue, the uncles would just like be talking and engaging, and then all of a sudden you'd notice they had just like dropped off to sleep for 5, 10, 15 minutes, and then they would just raise their heads and carry on the conversation. The problem with that is often the topic had changed in the time that they were napping, and more than, I know on more than one occasion, Ron's dad had to be corrected that um, actually we've, we've settled that, we've moved on to this. But just that feeling of, I cannot stay awake, that's what the disciples were, cha were challenged with. The truth is, what this shows us is that they were human. And when you think about what they were processing, it was probably a confusing combination of emotional and physical exhaustion. They knew Jesus was going to face his death. They were facing imminent loss. Potentially, they were frightened about their own futures, their own callings. They knew what, laid, what was laying ahead for them. They had given up everything to follow Jesus, and they knew that they were going to lose him. So they were being human in their fatigue. Some of you will know that in the, last, in the year 2019, Ron's family um, went through a period of loss, and we lost three family members between May and October. Uh, his brother, who passed away, and he was the second of the three, we walked through his final days of um, battling lung cancer, and it was a really challenging time for all of the family to sit with him, to watch him, to be present to him. And it made us tired. It made us tired because grief is exhausting. And that's what the disciples were facing. They were tired. So if we go back to the story and we notice that Jesus was deeply human, we notice he admitted his, his humanity. He was sorrowful to the point of death. I strangely take some comfort in this. The Son of God was sorrowful to the point of death. So it gives me permission to admit these kind of feelings. We don't have to put a smile on and recite trite sayings, this too shall pass, as my mother used to say, and really annoyed me during my teen years, I'll confess. Um, or, all things work together for good, and things will pass, and they will work together for good. But in the moment, sometimes we need to sit with the depth of our feelings, not stew in them, not stay there, but admit them or be present to them. We have a model here, too, in Jesus. In the midst of his deep sorrow, he stepped away three times to pray to the Father. Sometimes we can't pray. We simply can't bring words to our feelings. When Ron's brother was dying, we, was, we were perplexed as to how to pray. Should he live? Should he die? What did God want? And so we sat silent a lot of the time, but present. And in being present, we could experience the moments where God was present too, in the conversations, in the mu in music that was shared. People came in and read scripture, and just in silence, we could 
we could experience God's presence by being present to that situation that was a situation that we felt completely helpless navigating. As the story comes to a close, we notice that Jesus acknowledges his fate. He leads them out with the words, rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. After a time of prayer in the midst of deep agony, he reacts with courage and purpose, having processed his grief and brought it to the Father. He's accepting his fate. It doesn't, hap it doesn't always happen this quickly. This is a little screenshot of a story, and sometimes it takes a lot longer in our lives for us to process things. But this is a model here of Jesus taking his, his worries and his fears to the Father and then moving through it and moving on to acceptance. So as I situate myself in this story, I can relate to the feelings of all of the main characters, of Jesus and his fears and angst about his own future, to the, to the feelings of the disciples in their deep fatigue, physical and emotional. And in so doing, I come face to face with my humanity. I am allowed to struggle. I don't have to be perfect or even put on a brave face. And if I'm wise, I'll take my cue from Jesus, who takes his deepest longings and fears to God. I would say that my own personality doesn't find this to be an easy thing to do. I'm more apt to try to figure things out, to solve things myself, maybe to stew in a situation. But Bruce Hindmarsh, who's a theologian from Vancouver, whose writing I enjoy, says, we are made for prayer. It's our most human selves. The room has already been prepared, and in that experience, we recover our humanity. He further talks about praying into the text, praying out of the text, and we can do that when we approach a story as we pray into it, we walk through it, and then we pray out of it, encountering Jesus and asking of him, what is he asking of us? In our story this morning, it's clear what he's asking. Take our very real humanness and bring it to God. I think that many of us, if, especially if we've grown up in the church, feel if we're honest, a lot of struggle around prayer, or some struggle around prayer. Maybe you don't, and if you don't, that's, that's great. Um, but we ask questions like, do we pray enough? Do we know the words to say? Does God hear? Does he answer? Do we pray in a prescribed form every day? If we don't, do we feel guilty? The, the disciples' stress, um, which made it impossible for them to even stay awake, uh, was, was stress and emotional fatigue. What kind of things get in the way of our prayers? It's becoming cliche to talk about how busy we are, how distracted we are, social media, access to information. I remember when we first got access to the internet on our home computer in Edmonton, however many years ago, uh, we accessed it through a greater network through the University of Alberta where my husband was studying at the time. And we, it was dial-up and we had, to, we had to try to log on. And sometimes it would take 100 tries to get onto the internet. And now I'm annoyed if the Wi-Fi is slow and heaven forbid it conk out altogether because I don't know what to do with myself then. We kind of live in the internet. It used to be a tool and now it's our home and we're never away from it. I think prayer can look different in various seasons of our lives. Uh, there was a woman that we knew in Edmonton. She and her husband were kind of mentors to us as we planted a church outside of Edmonton in Sherwood Park, and um, her name was Mary, and his name was John. You can't get, like, plainer, safer names than those. And Mary had uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and John had multiple sclerosis, so they were limited physically, but they were great mentors and offered us a lot of wisdom over the years. I remember when Mary was getting a little older in her life, someone said to her, what do you do all day? What do you do with your time? She said, well, I get up and I have breakfast, and then I pray. 
And so I was thinking, okay, she prays for half an hour, maybe an hour. But then she finished the sentence by saying, and then I have lunch. And I said, oh, you pray all morning. That's amazing. She committed herself because that was a time of her life when she could do that to, to um, rhythms of prayer. That's not workable for most of us here. And we have to find rhythms of prayer that work for the season of life that we're in. Sometimes, it's, sometimes it can be reading the Psalms or reciting the Jesus prayer that Brennan shared with us last week or um, praying through music. There's so many ways to pray, but we do have to be intentional about praying. So as I said at the beginning, the theme for this talk this morning came out of a piece of writing that I have done. So I'm going to invite you to sit back now, and I'm going to read it to you. So it's a bit of an oral reading. Um, get comfortable, but don't fall asleep like the disciples did. It's called, not surprisingly, Prayer and Presence. Prayer and Presence. These words arrest me, and I'm pondering them for days, taking them into my thought life, my work life, my home life. Letting them simmer and ruminate, they move in different directions, rising and falling, and revealing unexpected nuances. Words are a thing of beauty to me, a gateway to deeper thought, a richer experience of the world, telling the stories that are ripe for the telling. Our house is full of books, many half-read, littered with bookmarks and folded pages, the authors becoming friends, mentors, educators. So when I recently attended a lecture and then enjoyed a bit of follow-up with the presenter who used the words prayer and presence in our interaction, they settled into my soul. And then, as often is the case, they began to show up other places, like in a midday written prayer shared by a friend, prayer, and presence. And in the memory of a previously read book, a snippet of an article, a blurb from a sermon. Simple words, not really out of the ordinary in my world, yet that coupling jumped out of that conversation, went into my psyche, and has rested there since that encounter. Prayer and presence. It's alliterative, but it wasn't meant to be snappy or catchy by employing that literary device. It was instructional, observational, words of encouragement. Prayer and presence together bring a feeling of peace, a feeling of being in control. Maybe that's a rare feeling for me, so I'm drawn to the comfort of it. I can sit between those words and flesh out the answer to that question and other questions. In the course of my work, I read something as mundane as a church's annual business report, and there I find the words prayer and presence, as if this couplet is following me around, appearing in contexts where I least expect it. In the latter, the word compassion is added, forming a triplet that takes me from contemplation into action. Why do these words strike me so deeply? Prayer is a common practice among religious people of different faiths, something that I have practiced throughout my adult life, so why do I find this so compelling now? Prayer takes on a variety of forms for people, loud, long, silent, barely spoken, barely breathed, formal prayer with eloquent words born out of tradition, rambling, unkempt prayers spoken out of pain, desperation, or deep questioning, prayers of joy. Prayers employed to express words of deep longing, deep gratitude, or maybe an effort to understand. Miroslav Volf, in this compelling quote, draws a picture of our deepest desires actually being a form of prayer. Our desire for material things may be more than just a chain. It may be a sign of our search for meaning. It may be a prayer. This speaks into the depths of our souls where the deep work is done, where the true wrestling with self and God happens, 
where the transactions between disordered loves and longings and choices are actually misdirected prayers. This image invites me to contemplate prayer on a whole new level. Soul conversations with one another can be a form of prayer, an offering up from ourselves deepest desire, questions, the answers to which exist outside of our common understanding, the answers to which can only be received from outside of our collective selves. Presence, though. Presence is something that is harder to define and definitely harder to practice. Real presence with people, with God, with the world around me. Distractions of every sort battle for my attention, and I'm easily caught up in the message that my life cannot and will not compete with the beautiful lives of others, and I am no longer present. I'm distracted by the tyranny of the urgent. What to make for dinner? Do we have onions? Need to throw laundry in? Don't forget to pick up the library book on hold. And yet, presence can be cultivated in the midst of these quotidian demands and the distractions of false messages. Presence takes practice and prayer. And together, they create a framework in which I can navigate my world. They can steady my thinking, my perspective. They can alleviate my distractions. They don't need to eliminate them, but they create a filter through which to see the world. These words settle me. They become an antidote to worry and fear. And not just in the moment. These words begin to form a lens through which I see things in my life that take time. So many things in life take time. Children, for example, financial challenges, aging parents, health challenges, careers, big things that require perseverance and presence, prayer and presence. We are daily delivered a stream of false messages that things can be fixed quickly, diets that promise unlikely results, exercise programs that promise a perfect body. But as, but as I steady myself to notice, I'm less focused on end results, instead becoming a partner in the process. I'm not demanding a conclusion. I'm one of the players along the way and I'm noticing incremental change. So when I position myself between these two words, I begin to notice. Noticing is the offspring of being present. Barbara Brown Taylor referencing noticing as we navigate the world says this, it is a wonder we can walk anywhere without cracking our shins on altars. So rich is the world around us if we decide to be present. That's the end of the writing, but I want to pick up on that little quote from Barbara Brown Taylor just to close. Um, what does she mean by altars in the world? When we think of an altar, we might think of some of the imagery that's around us here, um, but that's not what she's talking about here. Um, my, my older son, Stephen, is a world traveler. He loves to travel. Um, traveling seems to give him life, and he basically saves money and heads off on the next trip. And he recently came back from a trip to Guatemala and El Salvador. Uh, he is a seasoned traveler, and I don't worry too much, but he did mention this time taking three chicken buses to get to his destination. So I'm not sure what a chicken bus is, but if, you know, I couldn't help imagining that there were chickens crawling all over him. But it was only 50 cents a leg, so it was, um, it was a good deal. Anyway, um, of course, I do pray for Stephen for his safety um, and that he, that he would um, have good trips. And so on, a recent, um, on his recent trip to El Salvador, he, he posted this picture on his Facebook and Instagram. He loves to take pictures of churches. He's fascinated by the architecture. And so every time he travels, there's always um, a collection of churches among his photos. And so I, I looked at the church, and I thought it was beautiful. It reminded me a bit of churches in other places in the world. And then 
as I looked closely, and you're really going to have to look very closely to see this because of it being up on the screen, but if you look up on the hill behind the church, there are three primitive crosses up on the hill, uh, just up kind of in the middle there near the top. And I noticed those when I first saw the picture, but I kept flipping through. But then through the week, I found myself going back to this picture, and I found the picture very compelling every time I looked at it. And what this picture tells me is that my prayers do not go into a vacuum, that God is present in the world, that God, who is over all and in all, is present to my son on his traveling as much as he is present to me here in Waterloo, to us here this morning. And that's, I think, what Barbara Brown Taylor is meaning by an altar in the world. And if we're watching, we will see God's presence in the world. It can be in, some, in a piece of art, in some music, in a conversation with someone, out of a story, and of course, when reading scripture and praying. So let's wrap up um, just by returning briefly to the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and reminding ourselves, as I said earlier, that Jesus took um, his power from his time in prayer with God and he was able to step out and do take on the hardest thing that anyone ever would have to take on, taking on the sin of the entire world. I'm going to ask you now to um, take out the insert that's in your program. Hopefully um, everyone has one. It will be up on the screen as well. And if, if you don't have one, maybe share with someone or just watch it up on the screen. This is a, a little bit of writing by a poet that I love. His name is Padre Gotuma. He's a um, poet from Ireland, and my husband and I actually had the opportunity to hear him speak in Toronto a few weeks ago, and, and it was a lovely evening of him sharing his poetry. This piece uh, really struck me. It's not a prayer, but it is a piece about prayer. And as I read the piece through, I felt my own prayers rising up from between the sentences. And I hope that this piece will resonate with you as well. So what we're going to do, I'm going to read the piece to you, and then uh, there will be a few minutes of quiet with a little bit of music accompaniment um, for you just to sit with the piece, to sit in prayer. If you want to pull out the kneeler and, and pray that way, or if you'd like to stand, you can um, be as comfortable as you wish. So I'll read it without further comment, and then I'll come up and dismiss us to our discussion time. So this from Padre Gotuma. Neither I nor the poets I love have found the keys to the kingdom of prayer, and we cannot force God to stumble over us where we sit. But I know that it's a good idea to sit anyway. So every morning I kneel, waiting, making friends with the habit of listening, hoping that I'm being listened to. There, I greet God in my own disorder. I say hello to my chaos, my unmade decisions, my unmade bed, my desire, and my trouble. I say hello to distraction and privilege. I greet the day, and I greet my beloved and bewildering Jesus. I recognize and greet my burdens, my luck, my controlled and uncontrollable story. I greet my untold stories, my unfolding story, my unloved body, my own body. I greet the things I think will happen, and I say hello to everything I do not know about the day. I greet my own small world, and I hope that I can meet the bigger world that day. I greet my story, and I hope that I can forget my story during the day, and I hope that I can hear some stories and greet some surprising stories during the long day ahead. I greet God. 
and I greet the God who is more God than the God I greet. So as is our practice at Elevation, I'm going to invite you to move over into the gym if you would like to, and I encourage you to. Uh, we kind of say the morning doesn't end here, but it continues on around discussion tables where you're able to explore the topic a little more with, with those in attendance today. Uh, the prayer team will also be meeting over here, and if you would like to pray, um, please join the prayer team for prayer. So uh, if you are heading to discussion, just one note, please take the little Padre Gotuma piece because one of the questions is, is centered around that. Thank you. Go in peace. <laughs>